Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. Today, we have a wonderful repeat guest on the show, Fran Perrin. Uh, Fran Perrin is somebody who many philanthropists and people in the social sector would know. She is the chair of 360 Giving, and we're going to be talking about the work they do, which is data transparency within the world of philanthropy. She's not only the chair of 360 Giving, but she's a philanthropist. She's the, the founder of the Indigo Trust, and she comes from, well, she's part of the Sainsbury family, so a long philanthropic history. And we're going to cover quite a few angles, uh, particularly within a context of COVID-19, which I know people have heard about for quite a while now. Uh, and as I'm speaking right now, I personally have COVID, uh, but luckily I'm feeling well, but I, I empathize with everything here. But there's been such such a shift within the world of philanthropic thinking over the last two years. And, uh, and Fran's been with us, uh, last time she was here, was pretty much at the very, very start of the, of the pandemic. So we're going to hear a little bit about how things have transformed. So if you're keen to understand how data transparency is invaluable to the world of philanthropy, and if you want to hear about what's really going on in the world of philanthropy, uh, particularly within a UK context as well, uh, tune in today. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, it's such a pleasure to welcome back onto the show Fran Perrin, who is the chair of 360 Giving. Fran, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto. How have you been over the last two years? It's been a very strange time for everybody, but I felt very lucky as a philanthropist that I've been able to help and be able to do something. Uh, and that feels a particular privilege. It's been terrifying and tragic to see the impact of the pandemic on so many communities that we care about. Uh, I've been Really pleased to see much of the grant-making sector really step up and act better than they have in the past in responding to this. I think we've learned a lot about what strategic grant-making looks like in a crisis situation and about when you need to change and adapt your strategy. So uh, I think that's helped lead to a more nuanced debate about the value of philanthropy which previously had been quite a binary, is it a good thing or a bad thing? And I'm glad that we're talking much more now about how to do it well. Yeah. So remind us, for and for our listeners who want to get more context, you can download the Fran's first visit to our show back in March 2020. But remind us a little bit about 360 Giving. What is the organization all about? So 360 Giving is about making better grant decisions by having more information and fitting funding to the areas where it's most needed and will have the most impact. 
So how can we make philanthropy deliver the most possible good with the resources available? We know that with all the philanthropic money in the world, we can't solve the scale and complexity of the problems. So we've got to get the most bang for our buck and make sure that at least we're doing everything we can to give well. Hmm. 360 Giving was set up out of my personal frustration that I couldn't find out what any other philanthropists were doing. And that seemed ridiculous in a Google era. So I went to the open data community because I'm a data nerd and said, why is it so hard? Why don't we have data on who is giving to what, when, where, why? Decided that there was really no good technical reason, just no one had been able to persuade philanthropists of this before. So 360 giving is a data standard. And then I spent a few years shopping it around to all the grant makers I could find who were willing to talk to me to persuade them to publish data on all the grants they make in a common standard. So if you go to 360 giving, you can search through a vast amount of grants that have been published, see who gave what to when, where, and to do what. So the aim was let's get grant makers using data, not just publishing it, but using it to make better decisions and also lower the barriers to entry for small charities that are fundraising. So they know where to apply and we stop wasting everybody's time applying for money that's never going to be given. So that's, I think, helped really. And it's now six years wow. since we first started talking about it. It's opened up a lot of conversations within grant makers about, hang on, why were we so untransparent? What were the reasons for that? What are we scared of? And also, what does it mean to be a modern grant maker in a digital era? You know, if you don't have proper knowledge of your past grant making, you don't have good knowledge management, you don't have a proper database, how can you be making good decisions? Absolutely. And tell me, over the last two years, um, have you noticed a big shift in thinking in terms of, well, I guess in part in terms of people wishing to be transparent, but also in terms of the way that philanthropic giving has been behaving and manifesting itself? I think pre-pandemic, I'd seen an improvement in the 360 giving work of publishers, and by that I mean grant makers publishing their data, really engaging the conversation, publishing data, buying into the idea. But actually, I think the impact of COVID was for them to really understand at a deeper level why this was important. Mm -hmm. Because people were saying, we know there is a disproportionate impact on these communities. We need to get money to them fast, but we don't know who to fund or we don't know where to go to. That's when you want lists of charities that you can search through. You can see who is working in a particular geographic location with a particular community. And you might still do due diligence, you might have your normal process, but you leap forward in how quickly you can make those decisions. Also, particularly grant makers wanted to collaborate. If they said, we need to all urgently do something about the homeless population, um, who we, you know, we need to get safely off the streets, we need to get access to healthcare. They wanted to work with other funders. And there's been a lot of, I mean, there's decades of collaboration within philanthropy, but the urgency of it was very real. And I hope that that's something that lasts as a real positive beyond the pandemic, um, because it's been fantastic to see funders genuinely working together and at speed as well. And you use that word genuinely working together. I think that's probably that probably betrays a certain uh, reality, I think, that 
at some points in the past, people talked a good game about collaboration. It wasn't necessarily happening, uh, but I'm really heartened to see how, how it's happening and how creative it is. And in terms of the giving then, so what's happened uh, with the pandemic? If, if I take a, a snapshot of 2019, you know, restricted giving was a huge thing. The notion of trust-based philanthropy wasn't something that was so pronounced. What, uh, what do you make about how things have shaped uh, shaped up over the last uh, couple of years? There's obviously a long curve in, in grant makers in the, the type and the scale of giving. So when I talk about a change, it's not that every funder has changed their way of giving, but a lot have. I think there's a big shift towards unrestricted funding, core funding, longer term grants, and a real curiosity to see how we can improve the process. I always think there's kind of strategy in grant making, who you give to and why, but there's also grant craft. What does it, what does it mean, the technical skills in how we do it? And that I think is, start, we're starting to look at that as a professional issue. There is a good way to do it. There is a better way to do it. Are we being reflexive and um, really asking ourselves what we can do better? So particularly on issues of diversity at the moment, this hasn't just come from funders themselves. It's come from fantastic challenge within communities and some great academic work by Edgar Villanova, amongst others, saying this is not a diverse sector. And how can you make informed decisions about tackling racial inequality if you have a largely white sector? So those conversations are happening genuinely. Again, it's an area where funders are now collaborating. So through 360 Giving, we developed a DEI, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion data standard to say we need information on which charities are led by communities of colour or different gender, sexuality, disability, neurodiversity. No one's been collecting that data. So how can we make informed decisions about grants to tackle racial inequality if we don't know which charity is working on this? And that's really filled in a lot of information. For myself, um, 360 Giving really stepped up at the start and said we need to track COVID-specific grants. And we were able to do that. We had There's a COVID tracker where you can see, um, I think it's over one and a half billion worth of grants just in the UK that were specifically to mitigate COVID's impact on communities. And that was virtually in real time. Wow rather than some funders who'd been publishing their grants data once a year or once a quarter, but this was much more rapid uh, and also able to track government grant making into the sector. Overall, we can now see over 108 billion worth of grants from 196 funders, 12 times the value, eight times the number of funders we had just five years before that. So it's one of the areas where I'm most delighted to have been wrong because I thought that 360 was a moonshot that might never really work or that it would take 20 years to get the change through a sector that doesn't always move at lightning speed. Um, I never thought we'd be where we are now. I like it. doesn't always move at, at lightning speed. I've heard the words glacial pace also, also referenced occasionally. But that's fascinating. So the whole section on 360 giving about diversity, uh, about COVID, these are 
these are innovations within the platform that didn't exist uh, in 2019. Absolutely. And I was very proud that the extraordinary team at 360 Giving um, had the tracker up and running so quickly. And um, the diversity standard, we've actually taken much more time with because it needed to be really consulted on and led by communities that were diverse who could tell us what would make a useful data standard. So that's taken time. Now my job is to help roll it out across the sector so that people start using the standard. But we have a much more digitally literate world of funders than we did five years ago. And that's really exciting to see, see that that is now a core part of funding organizations, not just an optional add-on. Mm-hmm. Without necessarily naming any names, unless you're so inclined, but are there any any big fish out there that are still holding out, that are still not sharing information? Um, I would say we perhaps had mixed success with different parts of the government, um, for good and bad. So a couple of government departments in the UK have done astonishing work to get grants data out, I mean, really phenomenal. And other parts, not yet. So um, it's actually government policy in the UK to publish government grants to the 360 giving standard. So we're just encouraging the remaining parts of government to see how helpful it would be and to help them with the logistics of doing that. So I'm, I'm optimistic. Within the foundation world in the UK, we've got a lot of the big names there. Um, there is a long tail of smaller foundations and understandably it's going to take longer for them to get on board because they have less internal resources, although we help a lot with onboarding people. Um, maybe one or two biggish holdouts, but I think change will come, just perhaps slower with some than others. Just a, it takes a little bit longer to smell the coffee. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I love the fact that you have these innovations within 360 giving. And there is one, so I love the whole knowledge sharing, data sharing. I'm fully subscribed to it. There is one little bit that came up in conversation that I really think it's interesting as well, where you know, what somebody said is like, Alberto, yes, we might all think it's good to share data, but actually sometimes in, in funding um, uh, agreements, they prohibit the sharing of data because they say this belongs to our foundation. Any thoughts on that side of things? Because I think that's a bit of a blind spot. Yeah, it's totally crackers. That's, um, I have no need to be diplomatic about that. Um, this isn't a competitive industry. We're not trying to beat other philanthropists, or at least we shouldn't be. We should be looking to maximize the impact of money. Now, there will be some justified exam uh, exemptions to that, perhaps around scientific research funding, where you need to wait until something is published. Uh, but it, it's hard to imagine really reasons why you wouldn't want to share the work and share the information. The greatest success for me as a donor is if somebody else starts funding the same organization, if somebody else sees the value. I mean, copy my ideas, please. If they're any good, take them. 360 Giving is completely open technology. All the code is there publicly on GitHub for anyone who's inclined to use that level of coding. It can be copied. I would love to see other countries take the code and the data standard and do a 360 giving for their own country. That would be amazing. We would do that if we had people and resources enough to do it. We're just concentrating on the UK, one country at a time. So I, I can't imagine why people wouldn't want to share information. It's different, perhaps, if you feel that a grant has failed, if a project has gone wrong. 
I think there are still then really valuable lessons to be learned about talking openly about why that is. And through my own trust, Indigo, we've done that. We've talked about failures of projects. It's always then a balance of can you do that without uh, damaging the reputation of charities where the fault, the failure may not have been down to them. It might have just been an impossible project or um, the government was overturned in their country and forces beyond their control. But we should talk far more about failure. Mm. We had Anna Hakobian from the uh, Children's Investment Fund Foundation here uh, recently, and it's exactly the point she made. I mean, you can learn so much from sharing about what hasn't worked. It's not just what has. Yeah. A colleague in a very large foundation said to me that he'd asked the measurement and evaluation team about the track record of that foundation. And they said, you know what? We've measured it, and every grant we've ever done has succeeded. Uh, and he said, basically, that team needs to be fired because if you think you've never failed, then you're not interrogating the data enough. And you touched on the Indigo Trust a little bit, and uh, you know what works, what doesn't work. You're not just with, you know you're not just involved with 360 Giving. You're also a philanthropist, and you think about uh, you think about these things strategically. What has been some of the impact with regards to your philanthropy, uh, how you've been behaving uh, as a family or as the Indigo Trust, or what's been what's been happening? I've always aspired to be a strategic philanthropist uh, and to move away from sort of the history of grant making in the UK, which is a long and honourable tradition um, that has achieved some extraordinary things in terms of social progress, but has often also been marked by a kind of amateurish this is a gentleman's hobby we take it seriously making the money but anyone can give it away and anyone can give it away but not necessarily give it well so i'm passionate about donor education about strategic grant making what's the problem we're trying to solve how are we going to do it how are we going to measure it now i don't think that means everything has to have a perfect evident base before you fund it because otherwise there'd never be innovation And a lot of the most successful changes that have come from philanthropy have been about taking big risks and doing innovative work. So I always want there to be space to experiment or to develop the evidence base. Sometimes we have to try things to prove that they don't work. That's been my approach, but always with a, you know, kind of, let's be 90% strategic, 10% willing to try something just because you have a feeling about it or it's important to you. I think as individual philanthropists or family philanthropists, there has to be room for that personal passion. Otherwise, we should write a big check, give it to Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and, and be completely hands off, which is a you know morally absolutely fine thing to do. I wanted to have more involvement. I think what really changed for Indigo in the early stages of the pandemic is that we said, this is a once in a generation crisis, hopefully a once in a generation crisis. We can't just have business as usual. We can't wait until we reevaluate our strategy in three years' time. We need to get money out to communities urgently. And I was absolutely passionate. I didn't want to look back and wish I'd done more when I could have done. Mm-hmm. So we could see very disproportionate effects on communities really quickly, but in areas that Indigo hadn't traditionally funded. So we didn't have the in-house knowledge to get money out of the door fast to the right areas. 
So instead of saying, let's map the sector and do some research, we said, who can distribute at scale and at speed? So within the first, I think, four weeks, um, we made a grant of a million pounds to the National Emergency Trust, which already existed, but mainly to deal with communities affected by terrorist attacks. Uh, and they were distributing money through the community foundations. So every part of the UK, I knew that the money would go from them to the communities that needed it. Then we gave a million pounds to the Trussell Trust, which runs network of food banks across the UK. As a strategic grant maker, normally I would say, let's tackle the root causes of poverty, let's campaign um, for better um, benefit system and welfare from the, from the government. Um, but meanwhile, people were getting hungry and uh, we felt very honoured to be able to support them which really helped their rapid response to COVID. We also gave half a million to the Oxford Community Foundation, which is local to us, and we got that out very quickly on top of our normal grants. So this wasn't instead of, we ended up giving 250% of our annual grants budget. Then we were able to take a bit of a pause and say, what are the other areas that are really feeling the impact fast, where we'd like to be able to do something, and as a lot of people have talked about, domestic violence was a real area because a lot of people were now locked down with their abusers. So we funded an extraordinary collaboration between the Rosa Fund and Imcan. So two organisations working with women and girls, Imcan specifically with communities of colour. And again, that was unrestricted funding to say, you know best how to spend this. We trust you. There's no evaluation, there's no metrics. We'd love it if you told us afterwards where the money went, but this is about trusting people on the front line to spend the money the way they know they need to. Since then, we've been doing more around, a um, little bit around racial inequality and also areas like prevention of child sex abuse, which is a vast problem and was before the pandemic, but also a lot of children became a lot more vulnerable during the pandemic. That's oddly ended up being an area that takes me right back to strategic grant making and evidence base, where the more I learn about this as a topic and as about the interventions that are going on, you say any strategic grant maker should be funding in this area because there is a desperate need for good funding and it will make a difference. Hmm. Were you uh, were you surprised at at your thinking as a philanthropy uh, when when the pandemic hit? Because here you are chugging along in a very strategic way, as many other foundations do as well, and all of a sudden this 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 shock. And are you at a, what's the reflection of how you perceived that reality as it was happening and the drastic changes that you did? You mentioned two hundred and fifty percent higher than what you would normally do and. What was your thinking back then? I think when I look back, it was crystal clear to me that radical action needed to happen. And I'm someone who overthinks everything and will tend to be anxious about making the right decision. So that level of certainty was unusual for me, but was absolute. If, if philanthropy can't step up in that kind of crisis situation, then what on earth are we all doing? I mean, really, kind of, what's the point? So had that confidence, but the real question was, what was the best thing to do? And I think that my previous experience of strategic grant making 
taught me that strategies have to change. You know, what's the line? A, a plan never survives beyond the first encounter with the enemy. Uh, the enemy in this case being COVID, but strategy has to adapt. Good strategy isn't about doing the same thing over and over without looking at the changing situation. Hmm. If we're fortunate to start thinking of COVID as something that hopefully in the not too distant future we'll start seeing in our rear view mirror, what is the future looking like? What are some of these changes that have happened over the last two years that uh, give you insight into what the future of philanthropy has in store? People talk about build back better, but call it what you will. What is that that future looking like? What's that road looking like? It's a good question. I think there are very few challenges now that didn't actually exist pre-pandemic. We've just become more aware of them, more thoughtful about them, or felt more urgency to tackle them. Um, discussions about racial inequality were happening long before COVID. I hope there is much more uh, impetus for funders to engage with that now. And so similarly, the lack of diversity in grant making, and that's an area we need to improve on. And there's some fantastic work going on across the UK, challenging grant makers and philanthropists to really step up their game on this. And that leads into examining all the power inequalities within philanthropy and how we have to do better on that, while accepting that philanthropy is inherently not a democratic process. I think there'd been quite a polarised debate. Philanthropy is a good thing or a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I like the nuance that is emerging about how can we take it, value it, but do it better and defend that value. So uh, Beth Bree's recent book on In Defence of Philanthropy is a very valuable uh, read. And I encourage people to read that, as well as uh, Modern Grant Making by Tom Steinberg and Gemma Bull. So we're really seeing some balanced discussion about this now. And I hope that's the future of philanthropy, improving what we do, challenging what's not working, and um, having the tough conversations. I just last week chaired a debate on the tensions between impact measurement and evaluation versus trust-based philanthropy. And fantastic to see more people engaging in trust-based philanthropy, because as I was saying, you know, trust the people on the front line. They are the, the experts. They have the lived experience. But I don't think we should be throwing evaluation out of the window because sometimes things don't work. Sometimes philanthropy makes things worse. If we don't measure anything, then how do we know we're not doing harm? But how you tackle measurement in a trust-based giving relationship is a new area. So we have to have those conversations. And it was actually a topic you know, filled with practical suggestions of how grant makers can do this better. And yeah, these are not mutually exclusive. I think they can complement each other very well as long as you get the sequencing right and, and the context right. You touched on the power imbalance a little bit a minute ago. Uh, any thoughts on that? Like, wh what's the thinking within UK philanthropy if we're looking at the sort of global north, global south power dynamic? And that seems to be also a topic that's come to the fore quite a bit as of late. Absolutely. I still feel we're at an early stage of really tackling those questions. It's, um, it's fantastic to see those debates happening, but I'd say there's a lot more for us to do. And as a funder, you don't know what you don't know. And people will rarely tell you the truth when you're getting things wrong because the incentives are all backwards. So I'm encouraged to see people getting more feedback 
from their grantees, allowing more challenge from civil society organisations. That can lead to a bit of defensiveness. It's not nice to have people tell you that you're doing a terrible job. But hopefully this is this is philanthropy doing better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me ask you, if somebody's listening to this and they want to find out more about how to use 360 giving, where do they go for this? What's the website address and what do you recommend they, they think about right now? Google or search for 360 giving and we pop right up. All the information you need is on the 360Giving website or look at us on Twitter at 360Giving. Um, everything you need is on there, guides for uh, foundations who want to publish, guides for charities that want to use the data and our open tool GrantNav, which allows you to search through all the billions of grants that have been made. If you can Google, then you can use GrantNav. It doesn't require any data nerdery at all and it's free to use. We've also published blogs and resources about the debate and about the advantages and also about building knowledge skills within the community. So I'd recommend going straight there. Excellent. And all you need really is an open mind and just an appreciation that sharing is caring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's the, the open mind that says, what could we be doing better? And who will tell us what we could be doing better? My call to arms would be ask people who can tell you the truth, give you the difficult answers, not just people who'll say that you're doing a great job. Mm. And the other call to action, if somebody's listening to this outside of the UK and they think, yeah, you know, we could set something up like this or we'd like to collaborate and we're based out in South Africa or we're based in Japan or, again, what, um, happy to have those conversations? Happy to have those conversations, delighted. In fact, please copy things we've done, but please improve them do them do them better uh all the code for 360 giving is available on github it's all open free to use so it can be copied um we can even you can fork the code which means uh varying it perhaps for uh local differences there might be different charity legislation in your country on how charities are registered uh please copy our ideas excellent excellent key takeaway for our listeners, is there one thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? You don't know what you don't know, so constantly ask yourself, uh, where can I find out more information? If I can't get the information I need, why can't I? And can I solve that problem for other people? I love it. Fran, welcome back onto the show. It's been great hosting you again. I'm looking forward already to your next visit uh, somewhere down the line. Very insightful, very inspiring as well. And I'm delighted to see how things are going from strength to strength. Despite the challenges of COVID, I think there's um, there's a lot of learning experiences that you're, um, you're embracing and you're doing stuff about. So thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. You've been listening to a great conversation with Fran Perrin, Chair of 360 Giving. For information on this episode and 150 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button or follow us if you're not doing so already. Do tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the show. It makes a huge difference indeed. And leave us a rating and a review as well. It makes a big difference as well. Thanks so much for tuning in as always, and I'll catch you next week.